following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. So the story of Jesus' birth goes something like this. Mary, the mother of Jesus, was engaged to be married to Joseph. Um, But before they were married, and while Mary was still very much a virgin, had not slept with Joseph or any other guy, she was found to be pregnant, but it was by the Holy Spirit. Now, Joseph was a just and righteous man uh, who did not want to shame Mary by divorcing her publicly. So he had it in his mind to divorce her quietly and secretly. And as he thought about these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said to him, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For this thing that has happened to her, this pregnancy has come about by the Holy Spirit. And she will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus, uh, because he will take away the sins of his people. So when Joseph woke up from his dream, he did exactly as the angel had commanded. And he took Mary home to be his wife, and she did give birth to a son, and he did name him Jesus. End of story. (laughs) I don't know how the whole ending thing works, but that's where the story ends. Um, Did I do okay? Did I miss anything? I think I I I remembered it. Oh, I did miss something. Oh, my goodness. I missed something. Okay, back up. Rewind. (laughs) Okay, you still name him Jesus, for he will take away the sins of his people. All this happened to fulfill the word of the Lord through the prophet, which says, uh, look, The virgin is going to have a child, is pregnant, and she's going to give birth to a son, and you will call him Emmanuel, uh, and uh, for he will, um, they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Oh my goodness, how could I forget that part? Okay, I fail. I get a C in storytelling. (laughs) Man. Um, Let's look at this, uh, and really to get the backdrop of the story, we also need to read uh, verse 1 of chapter 1, which says this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. Um, Or it also says, this is a record of the ancestors of Jesus, the Messiah, a descendant of David and of Abraham. That's where the story starts. I won't go through the whole genealogy, but the story starts there, and it says a few key things about Jesus. It says that he is a descendant of Abraham, which means he is fully Jewish. Right? It says that he is a descendant of David, which makes him what? An heir to the throne. Royal. right? A rightful heir to the throne of David. And it says he's Messiah. Uh, in order to be Messiah, he had to be the first two things. right? If he was not a Jew, he could not be Messiah. If he was not of the line of David, a descendant of David, he could not be the Messiah. And so in chapter 1, what Matthew was doing is establishing Jesus' right to his claim as Messiah. His right to be uh, a descendant of David, a a potential king, a deliverer, ruler of Israel. Uh, 
Um, the problem with all this, though, is that Jesus' birth is surrounded by incredible scandal. Uh, and it's really a picture of Jesus' whole life, because his whole life really was, was scandalous. In fact, the word we use for scandal comes from a Greek word, scandalon, and it really means offensive, right? And throughout Jesus' life, he's charged with this. Uh, later on in the, in the Gospels, or in the epistles, um, the Gospel is called offensive. The cross is called an offense to the Jews, a stumbling block, a scandalon, a scandal, right? And Jesus starts life this way, right? He starts off with this incredible scandal. And the scandal has to do with the, the fact that his mom gets pregnant out of wedlock, right? And that creates all kinds of problems for, for Jesus and for his, specifically for his claim to be Messiah, his claim to be an heir of David. Uh, if you are to step up to the plate and be Messiah, this is not the kind of thing you want in your background, right? Uh, and we know political leaders, rulers who have had checkered pasts. You know, we've questioned their, the, the origin of their birth, the country of their birth, right? Their parents' lineage. And those are significant factors when you're uh, leading, when you're claiming the right to rule a nation or a country. And that was true of Jesus. And uh, Jesus' birth was, was, was known, and uh, among many Jews, there was the charge. He has no right to claim to be legitimate a legitimate heir to the throne of David because uh, he was born out of wedlock. He was born, he was conceived out of wedlock, right? Um, so, so Matthew's got to deal with that, and that's part of what this story is about, is legitimizing Jesus' right to be Messiah and heir. And, of course, we know the problem um, his mother Mary gets pregnant. Um, she's engaged to be married to Joseph, but in those days, uh, the engagement was binding. It was a, a year-long period. Uh, but during that time, they did not live together, did not have sexual contact. Of course, in that day, especially to have any kind of uh, premarital sex was, was greatly looked down upon. And to become pregnant was, was getting caught, Right? And so here you got Mary. Turns out she is pregnant, and she has not yet uh, been married to Joseph, and there's all these questions. And of course, Joseph and all everybody else, and you and I, if we had been there, would think one of two things happened, right? Either Mary slept with Joseph, or she slept with somebody else, right? Because that's how you get pregnant. Uh, 99.999% of the time. That's just how it works. Okay, in case you didn't know, that's how it works. Um, so, uh, but we know, and, and Matthew makes it real clear, that even though those circumstances are true and correct, that, um, that they weren't married, and that she was pregnant, that it was not an act of immorality on her part, that this was something that the Holy Spirit did. Right? She conceived as a virgin. The Holy Spirit formed and conceived within her this child. So we know that, and, and in one sense, that clears up part of it. Um, not only do we get that information, but so does Joseph. And so the angel appears and says to Joseph, uh, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. She is innocent. She's pure. Uh, and, and so you can take her. And, of course, Joseph uh, had been planning to divorce her. And it says that he did that because he was a just man. And uh, in our culture, this would not be how it works. But in Jewish culture... 
if you were a just or righteous person, you, you did what was right, and it was required of him to divorce her. Right? So what that means is this. If, I, if he didn't divorce her, it meant that he did sleep with her uh, before they were married, and he was complicit. He was guilty of this, and he would have been um, admitting that he truly was the father. But if he were to be a righteous, holy, upright man, uh, he couldn't marry somebody who had slept with somebody else. So he was forced, uh, not by his own choice or will, but by, by custom and law, to divorce her. But also being a just man who was compassionate, he did not want to shame or humiliate her. Uh, to divorce would have required a number of witnesses, uh, but there was another way to do it without witnesses, and he would chose that that path. So he wouldn't put Mary up in front of the community. He wouldn't highlight her shame by divorcing her publicly. Just a side note of application. Uh, in our very individualistic society, we, we would think like, may think like this, that, you know, his reputation, um, he's being too vain about his own reputation, Right? Like if he was a real man, he would lay aside his reputation in his own honor and show love to Mary by taking her anyway, right? And that's kind of a Western way of looking at the problem. The, the deal is, though, that in Jewish culture and in Jewish custom, uh, it wasn't individual honor or reputation that was at stake. What was at stake was the honor or reputation of the community because they were to be a holy people, a holy community. And so for Joseph to take her in would be to sacrifice the reputation of the community that as a community they think this is okay. Right? It would be condoning that sin. Secondly, and more importantly, it would have put at stake the reputation of God. Right? It would have been compromising values and say, well, it doesn't matter. You know, I love her anyway, so it's okay. Uh, that wasn't allowed because that would compromise and call into question the very reputation of God. I, I, I highlight that sign out just simply for this reason. Uh, when you sin, right, or when you don't sin but you want to, <laughs> and you think, you know, if I sin or if I don't sin, if I do this, I'm going to damage my reputation. Right? That's what you hear. And I, and I had too many re- experiences recently dealing with this kind of thing and, and uh, significant sin and people's reputations and their shame being put on the line. And oftentimes I hear people say, you know, I've ruined my reputation. I brought shame on myself, Right? It's incredible how, how few times I hear people say, I am crushed because I brought shame on the name of Jesus. Right? We're so worried about ourselves and so careless about what we have done to the name of Jesus. Right? So for, for Joseph to do this, see, he's protecting, he is honoring the name of God. Right? So this is what it's at stake here. So this is not just a, you know, a, uh, a jilted boyfriend who's ticked off at his girlfriend because she got pregnant with somebody else. What is at stake here for Joseph is God's honor and his um, his call uh, to do the right thing, which for him means divorcing her, but doing it in a way that doesn't damage her. He's kind to her in this, right? So that's what he's going through. Um, but... God rescues Joseph as well and makes it clear to Joseph that this is done by the Holy Spirit. This is a God thing. This is a unique moment in history where God's doing something rare and extraordinary. So the angel comes and, as we know, 
And a dream says to Joseph, don't worry about it. Don't be afraid. You need to marry Mary. You need to take her as your wife. Um, because this is something that's been conceived and done by the Holy Spirit. Uh, so he does that. And uh, he, the other instruction, he gets two instructions. One is to, to take her home. The second instruction is to name him, right? To name Jesus. Um, so he does that. He takes him home. She, Mary has Jesus and Joseph names him. Um, <clears throat> So that kind of takes care of the scandal, right? Uh, it clears up any charge of immorality or inappropriateness on Mary's part, that Jesus is the illegitimate son through immorality. But that doesn't actually solve the problem of Jesus' claim to the throne. Now we have a whole new problem. And here's the problem. Uh, in this story, it says clearly, Mary is the mother of Jesus. Okay, Verse 18. Uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, was engaged to be married to Joseph, not the, the father of Jesus. Okay, it makes it very clear that uh, Jesus is not the son of Joseph. Now, in the first 17 verses, Matthew's gone to great lengths to lay out this incredible genealogy. And he lists these uh, generations from Abraham to David, from David to the exile, the exile to Jesus, to establish... Jesus' Jewishness as a descendant of Abraham and his uh, royalty, his right as an heir of the throne of David, connected to David. And then he says, oh, but by the way, Jesus isn't actually Joseph's son. Okay, that's a problem, right? Because even though Jesus is uh, not the product of an immoral relationship, he's now not a descendant of Joseph, right? So he's just unraveled his claim to the throne. Uh, and you could argue, and, and some people do say that, uh, you know, the genealogies in Matthew and Luke are quite different. And some people claim, well, one is the, is the genealogy of Mary, the other is of Joseph. By the way, there's no evidence for that, okay? Could be, may not be. Uh, either way, it's obvious in the genealogy itself that the line of descendancy, the, the, the heir is passed on from father to son, never from mother to son, okay? So uh, if you're Jewish and you're uh, in this system, whatever you think about the system, it's what system there is. And the truth is, Mary can't pass on the right to the throne even if she is in the line of David, right? So we got another problem. Um, because uh, if Jesus is going to be the Messiah, if he's going to be uh, uh, descendant of David, David, he needs to be linked to Joseph, right? Well, this is the fix. Uh, the angel comes, instructs Joseph two things. Take him home. Take Mary as your wife. Take them home. Take them into your family. And secondly, name him. Right? You are to name him. And oftentimes we emphasize the name Jesus, which is important. We'll see that. But equally important is the fact that it was Joseph who was to give the name. Right? In that culture and in that day, if you brought somebody home, brought a child home, brought them into your home, uh, acted to them as a father, and you exercised the right over them of naming them, you have functionally adopted them. Right? So that's the solution. And that's why 
the angel comes to Joseph not only to clear up um, doubt about the morality of Mary, but also to give these very important instructions. Very important. Okay, uh, He must name Jesus. He must bring him home. He must become his adopted father. Uh, and legally, and there's, there's evidence of this throughout Israel's history, that that would be recognized as... Um, making Jesus a legitimate heir to the throne. Right? So in one, at one level and in one sense, that is exactly what, uh, what Matthew's point here is in this, that Jesus does indeed have a right to claim uh, these three things, a descendant of Abraham, a descendant of David in the line of David, an heir to the throne, thus the right to be called the Messiah. Right? Uh, those were his right um, family line. And so Joseph does that, and he legitimizes Jesus as having the right to rule, the right to the throne, uh, the right to messiahship. Um, but that brings us to uh, some of the deeper levels of the story. And we all know, we all know the problem with heirs to thrones, right? Um, we can name Prince Charles because I won't go to jail for naming him, so I'll use him as, as an example. But there are other heirs of the throne that could fit this category. Uh, oftentimes they have a legitimate right to the throne, but they greatly lack credentials, right? They lack the qualifications and the character to fulfill the role. Um, they may be an heir to the throne, but they're a bad choice, right? They're a bad choice. So... Uh, in this story, we also have to establish that Jesus has the right credentials. Not only does he have the right to rule, but he has what it takes to fulfill this role. So uh, Matthew deals with that as well, and he explains in this story why Jesus not has the right, but actually is qualified as this role of uh, Messiah King. And he does that by uh, spelling out clearly the task at hand, the job that Jesus is called to. And uh, that is done through his naming. He says, you are to name him Jesus. And he says that that name is significant. Uh, the name Jesus is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word Yeshua or Joshua. Okay, So Joshua sitting back there. We could call him Jesus. right? Because uh, it's the same name. right? And it means the Lord saves. So he is to name him Jesus the Lord saves because... He will take away the sins of his people. Right? His, uh, and a king would have been identified as a, a rescuer, somebody who would come on, and the Jews were looking for this. A Messiah who would come and deliver them. But they were looking for political deliverance. But Matthew makes it clear that, that, is, that Jesus' role is much greater than that. He's not coming simply to rescue them from the Romans. He is coming to rescue them from sin and death. That is his calling, his job, and his purpose. He will save them from their sins. Uh, his name uh, was very prophetic and was his job description. Uh, it spelled out the mission of his life, uh, his, which was far more spiritual than material. Uh, so how was Jesus uniquely qualified for that mission? How was he uniquely um, credentialed to be the one who could save the world from sin. Uh, well, the virgin birth itself 
explains his credentials. Um, and uh, a lot of people don't get why it's crucial that Jesus was born a virgin. Uh, the world certainly misses the point of this. And sometimes we get the idea that Jesus, that God just likes to do weird things, you know. It's like, well, I've never done this before. Let's try this. Let's have a virgin give birth, right? Um, Jesus is not frivolous. He does not do things without meaning or purpose, okay? It was essential that Jesus be born this way. And it was related to his credentials. Um, Jesus was incarnate, right? We know that. And the virgin birth um, explains to us what that means. The virgin birth tells us that Jesus was not normal. He was God incarnate. And by that we mean God poured himself into human flesh. The Spirit, 100% Spirit, pure, eternal, infinite God became a man, right? In the person of Jesus Christ. And the virgin birth explains how that happens. Um, and and it's, it's, it's need. Um, first of all, the incarnation means that Jesus had to be fully human. Right? Um, Jesus could not come to earth via Star Trek. You know? Star Trek, you, beam, you, you get the little beamer thing, you know, and you get beamed places. Okay? That would not work for Jesus. Uh, it would not work for our redemption. God couldn't just get into the little beaming capsule and beam himself down to earth, and he just kind of materializes with the funny noise. What are they going to do? And in Star Trek, he just appears. Okay? That wouldn't work. He had to be fully human, which meant he had to be born like everybody else was. Right? He had to come through the womb of a woman. He had to be conceived as a uh, mind-boggling, as a single-cell creature that began to grow and form and shape in the womb. Right? Uh, he had to be conceived. He had to spend nine months in the womb. And he had to be born like everybody else was born. He had to be a one-day-old, one-hour-old infant who was weak and desperately in need of the help of his mother and others. Right? He had to grow up like everybody else and experience everything that human beings experience. Okay, that was required. He had to be absolutely fully human flesh and blood. So it was essential that he be born to Mary. But the incarnation tells us that he also was fully God. 100%. Okay, it wasn't 50-50. He was fully human. He was fully God. Uh, he was not fathered by a normal father. This was produced by the Holy Spirit who conceived, who poured God into this single cell in Mary's womb. Okay, amazing. And if you can explain or figure this out, how God could do this, you know, it just boggles my mind. But this is what God did. It's what the Holy Spirit did. Right? And in Jesus' nature, in his being, he was fully human. At the same time, he was fully God, uh, laying aside some of its glory for a time. But in his being, absolutely 100% God. Um, literally it says that Jesus that, that, that Jesus was conceived in Mary uh, as he came out from the Holy Spirit. Right? Uh, Paul, uh, Paul, Matthew 
uses very careful language here to describe this impossible thing. But in the end, uh, it, John sums it up well in John 1.14 when he says, And the Word became flesh right, and dwelt among us. Um, so Jesus uh, is implied in this a Holy Spirit conception. It is implied his incarnation. Now there are some people who will say, well, you know, the Holy Spirit conceived doesn't really say that. You know, it doesn't really prove the incarnation. And that may be true. It hints at it, it implies it, it may not prove it. But the prophecy from Isaiah absolutely proves it, right? Uh, it says all this came about, all this was done in order to fulfill the message of the Lord through the prophet Isaiah, which was what? Uh, the, the virgin will conceive, she will give birth to a son, and you will name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Right? If there's doubt on the Holy Spirit side, there's no doubt in this prophecy. Because the prophecy says this, the one who is born of this virgin, this boy who comes out who's born a human being, is God with us. Right? Uh, it's one of the most direct bold statements of Jesus' deity in, in all of the Gospels. Jesus is God with us in human form. Right? Clearly states his incarnation directly and boldly. Uh, so why was that necessary? Why was it necessary for Jesus to be like this? Right? Well, it says he will take away uh, the sins of the people. How would he do that? Well, it doesn't explain it, but, but we know. Uh, the only way sin could be dealt with, as the whole Old Testament portrays and points to, was through a sacrifice. Right? The, there is no, uh, without blood, there is no remission of sin. Without a sacrifice, there is no atonement or forgiving of sin. So Jesus, in his birth announcement, is identified as the sacrifice for sin. Uh, and it was required for this sacrifice that he be both God and man. Uh, in order to be the suitable substitutionary sacrifice for us, he had to be fully God, fully man. As, as, uh, as fully God, he was able to pay the eternal penalty for sin. Right? Uh, no human being could ever be infinite enough to pay the eternal penalty and consequence for sin. Only God could do that. Only God could be infinite and big enough to provide a sacrifice adequate for the sins of even one, right? much less all the sins of all. So it was required that Jesus be divine, that he be God. But at the same time, God himself could not die. Right? God could not uh, be nailed to the cross. Uh, God, uh, apart from a human body, could not identify with sin. So it was required that Jesus also be fully human. And in his human body, he was able to be a sacrifice, to die, to identify with our condition, to become sin and to take on our sin and to die for us. Um, so in that, Jesus is the perfect sacrifice uh, for sin. So I love this. I love that in, in, in Matthew, uh, he gives in this little brief story of Jesus' birth the whole picture of the gospel, right? God saw our need for him, 
our need uh, to pay the penalty for our sins. He poured himself into uh, the virgin's womb in the person of Jesus Christ, becoming fully God, fully man, with the mission and purpose of growing up so that he could die on the cross for us. And by that, to save us from sin. Uh, Amazing. Um, I remember one time I was preaching uh, at my former church back in the States, and, uh, you know, I was preaching through, I think, the book of Luke. And it was one of those deals where I was almost at the end of the book of Luke, and it actually coincided with the coming of Christmas, you know. So your your preacher, you know, pre, this is preacher agony. You know, this is what preachers have to torment themselves over. Is you know, do I keep going through the book of Luke and finish um, by talking about the, the the cross on Christmas, right? Or do I ditch the cross and go back to the birth story, right? Well, I made the fatal error apparently of pressing on, and I thought, well, you know, Jesus' birth is about his death, so I plowed ahead, and for Christmas I preached. Uh, the cross, right? And there was this little old lady who's about, you know, 90-some years old. And uh, she came up to me after the service, and she just chewed me out up one side and down the other. How dare I preach the cross at Christmas time? And how horrible that was, and how wrong it was, and how what a bad preacher I was. And maybe she had a point, I don't know. Um, but I'll tell you this, even if you preach the birth of Jesus at Christmas, it always points to the cross, right? It always goes to the cross. And, and when you look closely at the details of the story, um, it's there, right? Uh, from, from his conception, the cross was in sight. His sacrifice was in sight. So we really can't get very far, even in the Christmas story, we cannot get far away from the cross, from the gospel, uh, what Jesus' life was all about. Uh, let me close with with uh, one last thought. And as I said, I believe that in this story, God addresses two of the main or two two chief needs of the human heart. Right. Um, in Jesus' birth, He is portrayed the mission of redemption. Right. The cross is there. Redemption is there. But there's really two sides to redemption. There's really two components to the gospel. And uh, as we look at this story, we, we tend to see one and not the other, right? So, so let's go back and just look at a couple of the details real briefly of the story related to Jesus' names. Um, first of all, his name Jesus, we talked about that. Uh, he will take away the sins of his people. First need of the human heart is what? Well, we all probably recognize the need for forgiveness, Right? We all are painfully aware of our sin uh, and the guilt and shame it brings on us. Uh, before you came to Christ, chances are most people's conversion experience is one in which they become painfully aware of their sin and how it has disqualified them from, from eternal life. And so we, we are quite aware of that need and we easily see Jesus as that sacrifice for sin, right? We can talk about that. And when we talk about redemption, uh, for me, that's, that's the thing that jumps out at me. Redemption means Jesus paid the price for my sin, 
right? That's what redemption is. It's buying something back. Uh, and in this case, it's buying us back from our bondage to sin and death. Most of us can identify quite well with that. Um, but what's the other need that is equally important and part of the gospel story? Well, what's Jesus' other name? Well, here he's called Emmanuel, right? God with us, right? Uh, that also relates, I believe, to a chief and great critical need of the human heart. Um, and it is what I would call, one, one way you could put it is the, is the need to be home. The need to come back home, right? And here's what I mean by that. Uh, redemption does mean purchasing, but in Jesus' time, in New Testament times, um, what, what was normally redeemed or purchased was a slave. So if I go out and get myself in huge debt and I'm not able to pay off the debt, um, and, and Jesus tells a parable about this in the, in, in the Gospels, right? The guy, uh, the king calls an account and, he's, and the guy says, I can't pay it back. And so the king says, I will make you a slave. I will make you a prisoner. I will own your life until you can pay back every cent, right? And that's how a lot of people in Jesus' day ended up in slavery, and oftentimes they would be separated from their family, from their home, often would be hauled off to completely different countries where they would be forced to work as a slave to pay back their debt. Now, if a rich relative came along and saw the tragedy of that situation and felt compassion and mercy and said, well, you know, poor Tim, he's off, you know, laboring away in you know, some foreign country and he's separated from his family and his children miss him and, oh, it's Christmas time. And so we've got to bring, reunite him with his family. So... I would go and I would pay off his debt so that he would be released from that, that debt and be set free, right? That's, that's the side of redemption we see as paying for sin. But if I leave the story and stop there, it's not a very happy ending, is it? Because I'm still living in that far-off country and I'm still removed and separated from my family, right? Redemption means setting them free from the bondage in order to restore them to their family. They get to go home, right? They get to go back and be with their family. That's the picture of redemption. Jesus says He will take away their sins. Jesus also says He is God with us. He is God with us. Not only does Jesus redeem us from our sins, but He does so in order to bring us home to the Father. Right? Are we aware at all of that need of our heart, right? Our need to go home. Our need to be living in the presence of the Father. Um, when you think back about Christmas, uh, and for some people this doesn't work, but maybe for most of you it will. If you think back to your earliest, maybe as a child, or uh, can you remember an especially good Christmas, right? Uh, so for some people, you know, maybe your father was an alcoholic and Christmas was a terrible time. But for many of us who had positive families, um, chances are Christmas brings up some good memories, right? Uh, and maybe you can't picture one specific Christmas, but oftentimes when you think about Christmas, you feel kind of warm, right? You feel happy. You feel a kind of the sense of joy of something you've tasted as you were with family, 
And for me, you know, I just have these visions because I lived in Colorado, which is a great place to do Christmas. I, I feel sorry for those of you from the Southern Hemisphere where it's summer. That just wrecks Christmas. Because, sorry. <laughs> sorry, David. Because <sighs> there is just something cozy about snow and cold and being kind of inside in this cozy, you know, the fire's going in the wood stove and it's dark outside and you get up early in the morning and you make coffee and there's smell of good stuff cooking and you're all together as your family and kind of all the rest of life has just stopped and you're just there together, right? You're home. You're with people you love. You're sharing together, right? And there's something about that. And I think a lot of what Christmas has become for a lot of people is pursuing that, right? Wanting to recreate that that feeling of homeness, of connecting, of warmth and comfort of being with people I love and eating food I like and, you know, sharing things together, right? Um, Timothy Keller in his book about the prodigal son talks about our longing for home, right? How we have those memories of childhood uh, or of when our children were young where there was something we would love to capture again, Right? But in his book, he talks about how when you go back to those places and try to revisit them and recreate them, what happens? Never works, does it? It's never quite what you remember it being. And he says that's because those things are just a glimpse of our true home, right? They're not the real thing. They're just a little foretaste of what is ultimately much better and greater, and that is our true Father and our true home and true relationship with Him, right? There is within us, uh, sadly, oftentimes uh, we're unaware of it. We're oblivious to it. But in every human being, there is a longing for home, right? There is a longing to be in relationship with the Father. There is a longing for that joy and that sense of belonging that we, we capture in this phrase, home, right? Joy. Well, Jesus says, or Matthew says of Jesus, he came to save their people from their sins, that side of redemption. He came to be God with us. Not so much maybe to bring us home as to bring home to us. That the other half of the gospel is this, that Jesus didn't just die to fix our sin problem. He didn't die just to forgive us. But he died to redeem us so that he could bring us home into relationship with the Father. And I think uh, it would do us all well to survey our own heart and to really come uh, to identify the longing in our heart for that thing, right? That thing that oftentimes movies captures or, or books and stories capture so well that draw us in and, and, and create in us hunger for something, right? And we go, oh, we wish we could grab out and grab hold of it, right? Well, Jesus says, I am that thing, right? And I come to bring the presence of the Father into your life, to be God with us. It's, it's incredible. Matthew starts his gospel with this phrase here, God with us, and he ends it with the same thing. Jesus says, um, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age, right? Uh, to experience the gospel, to know Christ fully, is not only to know his forgiveness, 
His redemption on that side. But it is to know God's presence with us. Of course, that's ultimately fulfilled uh, in heaven. But God wants to meet us now. Jesus says, I am with you now. It's not something you wait for. I am bringing the Father's presence to you now. It's important for us to identify this longing of our heart. And the reason is this, that uh, it's there. It's real. It is a force in your life. And the reality is that if we don't identify it and become clearly aware of its pull in our life, what will happen is that we will confuse that longing for home with longing to be filled by 10,000 other things. Right? Uh, I feel this need in my life and I think, oh, what I really need is uh, you know, the perfect mate, the perfect spouse, the perfect love of my life. That will meet that need. Right? I need the perfect home. Right? where I can have the perfect Christmas, that will meet that need in my life. Right? And if the current spouse or the current home or the current circumstance isn't cutting it, I just need to get rid of them and get a better one. Right? Uh, that's the woman at the well, married five times, <laughs> looking for the right one who could bring her home. Right? And that's what we do. If I only had the right thing, if I only had this, and advertisers, this is how they make their living. Okay, advertisers know the longing of your heart. And they tell you over and over again, yeah, you have a longing in your heart. And I'll tell you how to satisfy that longing. Right? But it's a lie. It is false. And any other thing that we seek to meet that need of our heart ultimately is idolatry. Right? It is idolatry. Your husband or your wife can become an idol. Your children, your grandchildren can become an idol. Right? Your longing to fulfill that need for God in any other way ultimately is idolatry. Right? That's why it's critical that we become aware of our heart in this area. And we identify that longing and we become uh, connected with it and realize that it should it should motivate us to pursue God. And, uh, you know, God's already there. The trick is we need to learn how to experience His presence in our life through communion and fellowship with Him. All right, let's pray. Lord God, we just thank You so much for, uh, for sending Your Son, for coming... Um, for by whatever miracle we can't begin to understand, by coming and be, becoming uh, a man, by taking on a human body, becoming flesh and blood, uh, so that you could be the ultimate and perfect sacrifice for sin. Not simply to um, clean us up, not simply to... Um, take away our guilt, although that's a huge part of it. But even beyond that, to bring us close to your heart. uh, To fill our longing and empty heart with your very self, your very presence. Lord, may uh, may we be painfully and clearly aware of our thirst for you. And stop trying to satisfy that in other things. And instead earnestly pursue you. Uh, 
to drink deeply of your presence and find joy and satisfaction in being in our true home with you. Lord, help us do that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Thank you.